we're gonna get started tonight. It's something I haven't ever spoke on before, but we've done a lot of behind the scenes talking about it. So tonight we're gonna speak on the generation of shock. You know, in the entertainment business, they said we've traded the ability to inspire for the power to shock. So I want you to realize as a generation that there's an all-out attempt on your life to shock you. You've been exposed to a lot of shock, a lot more shock than most people overall. And I want you to be conscious of the shock that you've been through and realize that you're going to have to do something about it. And I'm going to describe the effects that it has on you. And then also we're going to spend some time coming up with an answer because shock does some things to you. So mainly what shock does is it shocks you until you're numb. <laughs> so you still need to leave room to be able to be, let me say this, shockable, <laughs> shocked. You've got to leave room in yourself to still be shocked. So the definition of shock is the human reaction to facts when you can't seem to wrap your mind around what has just taken place. When something has just happened that is so horrible that your mind can't take it in. It is the mental safety valve that causes you not to lose your mind. It's actually something built inside of you to protect yourself. And so in the essence of what shock is, it's actually a good gift to your life. It's actually something that's in the natural where your brain is trying to protect itself. So that your mind doesn't go crazy and just, you know, kind of unravel. So we're headed into not only the squeeze shoot of what's been done to us as a generation, but also what scripture foretells that's going to keep coming, what's coming upon the earth. And so when you look at different verses, like I think of Psalm 91 verse 7, you know, you think of that, that verse in Psalm 91, a thousand falls at my side, 10,000 by my right hand. I'm so glad that it doesn't approach me, but it sure does give me a lot to look at when a thousand fall, when 10,000 fall on the other side. I mean, you start thinking, is everyone going to fall? Is this what's going to happen everywhere? And then another thing that's prophesied is that there's a great falling away from the faith. That's in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. And that's terrible. You're just like, can nobody make it through these days? You know, the Lord has such a, a compassion for us that he said he's actually going to cut everything he can shorter to make it more bearable. So the shock is what's behind you. It's the pressure on the world. It's what they've done to the hearts and minds through the way that they've exposed things to you. And it's also what's coming. Isn't that great? And here you sit in the middle with us talking about it tonight. So I want you to evaluate shock so you're not shock by shock so it doesn't take over your body something happens in your life and it happens to you so quickly that it leaves you feeling powerless that's the number one condition of being shocked that you felt like something happened to you that you had no choice in the matter like it did something to the inside of you then so you meet people and they're veterans they're experienced Maybe they've been through a few wars, and they'll say to you, nothing shocks me anymore. I've seen everything. I've heard everything. This is what I call the voice of cynicism. You're just putting a really tough walnut shell around your heart so it stays tender. 
You're just acting tough. You're just putting on a hard exterior because of the fact that so much shock has come at you. You know, you can be in youth ministry long enough that you think, I've heard everything now. And so we used to have this little game that we'd go, now I think I've heard everything I've ever even thought of. Now I've known a kid who's done it. And then we continue to still have something that shocks us occasionally. <laughs> like one night Kayla told something in her story and I was like, I never had heard that one before. And so I went to sleep and the next morning I could not remember what it was. So I called the friend that had told it to me. They could not remember what it was. We had boasted, this is something we have never experienced. I called Caleb. What was it? She couldn't remember which thing it was. <laughs> so anyway, so we have a list of different people that have been the epitome of some element of shock where you just think, I've never heard that. But cynical people go to the point of just thinking, nothing shocks me anymore. And in the first place, I'm telling you, you need to retain the fact that you still allow yourself to be shockable. Because that's what they're trying to beat out of you. They're trying to beat out of you the ability to even be shocked because of, not because you've got your armor on, not because you're prayed up or have your authority. They're trying to get you where you can't be shocked because you're so just numb. You are just so, nothing shocks you because of what you've been through. You've just been battered too much. That's not how God intends it for you. He does not expect you to live your life that way. And if you ever see anything like that trying to take place in your life, I want you to remember what we're talking on tonight and get your notes out and restudy this. So when we see something being attacked, destroyed, if our freedom comes under attack, what happens? Well, if this is your reaction to it, I'm not willing to move. I'm not willing to fight back. Is that passive? Is that apathetic? You know what? It may be you're mixed up. It may be that you're exercising patience and gentleness and kindness instead of being outraged of what's going on. Instead of being floored that this could be happening. Instead of having something rise up inside of you. Something needs to fight back. It may be mixed up where you think that, you know, it's something that's so good about me. You know, look at everyone else. They're kind of crazy, and I'm so calm. To think that this is a time which calls for patience, we will miss our narrow window of time to react. There are some things that call for a quick reaction on your part. You know, I was talking to a guy. They brought him to me from Kohler. And he was an atheist. So they wanted me to debate him. And I can't remember what he said, but in the middle of our conversation, it's probably because I don't want to remember what he said, but he blasphemed God and he mocked him. And he said something that was just, it scared me for him. And I reacted to him. I'd been very systematic working through different belief systems. And then all of a sudden he just let that fly out of his mouth. And so in front of the crowd of people in the subway where we were having our discussion where they had brought him to me, he goes, see, I just proved to you I have more calmness and fruit of the Spirit than she does. And I said, sir, let me tell you something. I'm reacting to you now while you have a chance to repent. I said, but there'll be a day when you go over the side of hell and as you're thrown into the eternal lake of fire because of your rebellion to God, I'll be calm and you'll be the one screaming. 
You just got to pick which side of the fence you're going to scream on. I don't know where that came out of me. It just up and out. And that's exactly what people are doing now. They're priding themselves. It's a little bit of a religious spirit. And they say, well, I'm so happy that I'm so close to God. Look at everyone else. They've lost their peace. They're all traumatized by the events that's happening to them. I'm so spiritual. It was because you hadn't felt the pain yourself. But let me tell you, it is not the fruit of the spirit. When you meet great danger, this is not the way to react. We can have patience with people because in some ways people may be in some sort of shock disbelief with what's happening. Like they can't believe, there's, they didn't have a peg for it. Maybe they've had a lot go wrong in their life or maybe it's the opposite. They've never had anything go wrong in their life. So they just don't even think this could happen to them. They just, they can't even imagine a world other than where they're given everything that they want. So you have different sets of people, but it's amazing that are dealing with people that think that they have to tone the anger down and to have gentleness. It's appalling how fast everything around you can fall. But to think that this is a time which calls for patience, we will miss our narrow window of time to react. There are some things that call for in your life a quick reaction on your part. You know, have you ever seen anyone fall? I had someone really close to me fall and I had just a second to react to them falling. And what I did was I jumped and I couldn't stop them from falling on the concrete, but I was able to get my hand under their head. And so when they fell, they, it hurt them, but I caught their head from slamming on the concrete. And that's what I feel like that you do when you react. That was not a time for me to be patient, slow moving, <laughs> slow to action. That was a time for me to react to keep something from happening to someone. So that's what I was going to say is you have to remove the danger. You have to react to the danger. It will not address evil to have the mentality that this is a call for patience. We're taking the fruit of the Spirit and we're misapplying them to the times that we're living in. You know, the spirit of wisdom and discernment in Issachar is that you discern the times that you're living in. You know, you remember that guy going, the British are coming, the British are coming. That would be like saying, Lockins is coming, Lockins is coming. <laughs> For a certain response, that you have to get things in line. You have to meet the challenge or be met by the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> if you meet it with the wrong response to it, it won't stop the chaos. We think of it as the fruit of the Spirit on us, but it's really just a personality thing. We're just easy going. I don't react to anything. I'm just going along in life. It's like we give ourselves that option. It's not the fruit of the Spirit, but it's the lack of willingness to face up to great evil. And from my experience, sometimes I think it's this misguided concept that you don't realize how evil evil can be. Like you've got to move the marker over on what you think is the worst evil you could imagine. I would invite you to do some thinking of what is truly evil. And yes, it's surprising to me to see someone and that they embody that much evil in them. You know, you think of the Hitlers of the world, 
But a lot of times they're misjudged. The Hitlers are misjudged because people in the beginning didn't take them to be as evil as they really are. But it's something that's growing. And a lot of times if you can get your handles on it quickly or do something about it, a lot of times you can curtail it or delay it. So that's where I was going to say you need to have a face to face up to evil. You need to have a front. You need to have a way that you say when evil comes, when evil strikes, this is how I react to it. It's like when you look that rattlesnake in the face. You have to have a way that you face this. You have to find the right level of courage. The look that I'm giving you is that you can look at it like cynicism, where you just harden yourself and just expect it. Or you can be on the other end and not expect it, and then pride yourself and pat yourself on the back of, look how spiritual I am. The reason you're spiritual is because you haven't felt the pain yourself. When you feel it yourself, then it's too much evil. <laughs> then it's gone too bad. But as long as it's happening to someone else, or you think it's theoretical, you will never prepare for this moment. And this has taken me time to understand, because I thought sometimes, my dad is so negative. Like he's telling me this is going to turn out bad, and I just don't see it. And sure enough, he knew the signs of it coming. I remember one time he told me, it's going to flood. And I said, Dad, that bow will not flood. And I told him two or three reasons why it wouldn't flood. But he wanted me out there moving all the sandbags with him and bagging up the church. And I was telling him, I said, Dad, they're going to, I forgot what I told him would, would happen. But it was very smart. The next day, I was up to the top of my thighs in the water working with him. <laughs> Dad, I'm so glad we put those sandbags up. I'm so glad we moved all the vehicles and all the lawnmowers and everything out of there. You know, I was with other people that had the stewardship of it, and we had explained it to them, but they didn't move it, and it caused a lot of damage. But you have to prepare for evil in your life. If you're not going to prepare, at least don't call it by a spiritual name in yourself. At least don't pride yourself and be deceived and think you're more spiritual than you are. Just say, I'm apathetic, I'm passive, and I just don't let the world happen to me. I'm going to sing the Doris Day song, Que Seurat, Seurat. Whatever will be, will be. Everybody goes through a few hard things in life. Or you have the ability to hold it back from yourself, your family, those you're responsible for, that you use your prayer life, that you do things that actually have an effect for good. So, because we have been conditioned to shock, we have been numbed down on purpose by the enemy. It is really something that has happened to us. So, I want you to ask yourself, are you vulnerable to being shocked easily? And do a shock evaluation on yourself. Have you been exposed to prolonged shock? It's not healthy. Unresolved shock? Like, I'll tell you when you know that you're healed from it. I was sitting by this girl, and they were giving testimonies at our church, and this lady said, my dad came in to tuck me in at night. I'd fallen asleep, and my leg was hanging out of the bed. I had always thought, oh, this lady, she's like a sweet Sunday school teacher. And she said her dad came in, and he grabbed her leg, and he slung her and threw her against the wall with her leg. And she said it was totally not expected. 
But what happened when she said it, I could feel the shockwave go through her audience because she totally wasn't expecting for her dad to grab her by the leg and slam her. But the girl next to me got up and ran out the back of the church because it reminded her of what she had been through. That's how you know if you're healed. People are lying to themselves when they say that healing means you forget what happens to you. It's not forgetting. That's Alzheimer's. <laughs> it's not that kind of thing of where you think, I have to forget this happened to me. I'm going to tell you the words. It's what mom says. When I give my testimony, it feels like it happened to someone else. It's when you have that point where you remember it with your mind, but you don't remember it with your emotions. That's healed. And that's the evaluation that I'm telling you to put yourself through. Because in the world of Christendom, in the world of scripture, in the world of promises, we should not be masking or faking our healing. Because if you don't, you'll hit something that will bring it straight up. It will make it double worse if it's unresolved. I believe thoroughly you must resolve this stuff inside of yourself. So you have the unresolved areas that it comes and it attacks anything that's not resolved. In fact, it's like it puts a magnet in it and it draws something else to you in that area. So like my friend, it'll hit a nerve. But like mom... She can listen to someone else that's going exactly through what she's been through. And she feels compassion because she knows how bad it is. But she doesn't relive the pain of it. She doesn't get under it. Another thing that happens is some people, they kind of dismiss it or they compartmentalize it and they get restless. They find a coping way to deal with it or they escape. I was talking to a friend about this lesson on shock and what could be done about it. She goes, I have an answer for you. I said, oh, do tell me what it is. She says, oh, she said, I had terrible things happen to me in my life. And I've gone through quite a bit of shock. And she said, what happens is you can't quit thinking about it. It just goes over and over and over and over in your mind. And she said, you just, you don't have any ability to make your mind stop. And she said, what's bad about thinking about it is you think you'll process it, but it actually makes it worse. And the more you think about it, the more revved up and the more churned up and then the more you draw this stuff to you. I said, well, what answer did you find? She goes, I watch movies. She says, I'll watch movies for 12 hours. And she said, because it gives you the ability to not think. <laughs> she says, I have movie reality rather than life reality. Does that sound healed? But how many people do you know that's doing that? Yeah. Sometimes it's not an addiction. Sometimes it's this. There's something they don't want to think about. The bartender knows that. It's drinking to escape. It's doing something where you're not healed, but you're doing something to try to forget. It's not forgetting. It's emotional healing that has to take place. So initial reaction to the shock. Danger is when you go back into the shock rather than meet the situation with courage. Because remember, shock makes you feel powerless. Continuously exposed to it makes you have an ideal of powerlessness in your life rather than authority. 
Let me tell you someone that you know and you love that, that went through this. I've always studied this when I think of their life. It references to me. From the time I was young, I thought about the fact that King David started out with so much faith. But he got exposed to shock. He got exposed to this, and he couldn't seem to pull out of it. Now, he understood authority of the believer better than most because he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of hosts. But when it switched on him and it became his own king trying to kill him, it put him in shock. When he was serving the king and playing the harp for him and doing these things and being nothing but a blessing to him, it shocked him when the guy turned into a rage and tried to kill him. It shocked him it was his best friend's dad. It shocked him when he had to duck when he was in the middle of ministering to the Lord. It puts shock in you. You know, people that have been fired at while they were preaching. I mean, <laughs> you know, sometimes they've hired a lot of bodyguards now because they've been in a form of shock. And then David had to start running. And he began running and he began a perpetual part of his life of 13 years of running. And he taught himself how to run. And then he took on himself that he killed the 85 priest of Nob, that he was responsible. He asked for something to eat, and Saul came in there and killed every one of them because they had given David something to eat. Then he had Jonathan, and he had planned for Jonathan to be with him and partner with him, and this was supposed to be a covenant relationship, but instead, Jonathan manages to die on the battlefield. And there's no going back. I mean, you can't resurrect something from your past that had been a blessing to you, that had been a gift that was supposed to give you strength in ministry, and suddenly he's dead. And then you find out the whole army of Israel was slaughtered. The king is taken out, and you realize, I'm fixing to be king next. This isn't looking good. And then you go in, you get this guy named Joab, and he's bloodthirsty, and his brothers, and you know it's a family mess, and, and suddenly Joab kills Abner, and Abner was somebody that you had really thought, well, this is going to be a great relationship because he's defected and we're going to put the kingdoms together without bloodshed. And so it was the shock of losing his dreams. And then it went into the fact that he was numbing himself from Joab and he just thought, I don't even want to be with you. You just take the troops and go out. And it says kings normally went to battle, but David was... It just happened right before it that Joab had pulled that with killing Abner, and he just he thought, well, maybe I just don't have the toughness I need to be a leader, so I'm going to just stay at home. Well, he got himself in trouble because he was out on his balcony. And so he did the one thing he had the power to do as a king. He ordered the woman to come to him. And then after that took place, the worst part of all is David failed himself. Because Uriah was a man just like himself, full of integrity, loved David, wouldn't go to his wife, wanted to be with the battle. And David has a reason to want to first get him drunk, and when the guy wouldn't get drunk, he had a reason to have him killed. And at that point, David realized he had quit being David. He had quit being the heart man. Now he's crazy. He's confused. He's never going to wake up again in the morning and feel right about himself. He's murdered someone. He knows deep in his heart what he's done. His mind is all messed up. He's angry. He's angry at Jonathan died. He's angry with Joab and the bloodthirsty. He's angry at all this. And, and the next thing you know, a prophet comes to him and says, the sword and the, and the lust will be in your family and, and this is going to happen to you. It prophesied a dire future for him. 
And so he started begging that the baby would live. And the shock that he couldn't bring the baby back. And then his own son killed his brother. And then he finds out that his son raped his sister. And then he's like, then Absalom turns on him and he had to run. And then he told him, well, look, I know I was moved out of Jerusalem. I know Absalom desecrated my palace. He took David's wives. He had relations with them on the balcony to let all of Israel know this is what I think of my father. He was disgraced. His head was down. The next thing that happens to him is he says, but spare my son. And then they tell him, oh, you'll not believe the way we killed him. And they're all having the shouts of battle. And they said he got caught in the trees with his hair and he was hanging there. And we started just stabbing him. And we put the spears in him. And David's crying like a madman. And he says, quit it. I can't bear this. I can't handle hearing this anymore. And he's going crazy in his mind. And you see David break. At the end of his life, he's numb. They're putting the wrong son on the throne. He doesn't care. He's as good as dead. He's laying in the bed. They go, we know what will revive him. A beautiful woman. And they put her next to him. She was just a foot warmer to him. They said, he's dead. It doesn't even stir his blood. <laughs> he was fatalistic. He was resigned. Then suddenly when the prophet and Bathsheba come to him, he rouses himself, but then he comes to the conclusion, well, just, he quit the idea that the Lord is the defense of my life. He just said, just kill him. What happened is he was unprepared for evil. He was unprepared for shock. That's why what I'm telling you is so important. Because the more you take a leadership position, the more you step into righteousness, the more your light shines, the more the enemy thinks he has a target by which to shoot at you. Oh, there they are, and the, there's the lot. I shall shoot. And this is what happened. Shock has a profound effect on heart people, on the gentle of soul. I did studies of how to make it as a heart person and how not to let something unravel you. This is a lesson in shock. And it must not happen. You know, Esther, that was one that was pointed out that she's shocked by what takes place. I'm going to divulge from the way I usually tell the Esther story. And I'm going to take the romance out of it this time. You know, it's usually told as a great story of a fairy tale of she marries a king. And I actually love sharing it on those terms. That's more the way I like seeing it. But I want to face a harsher side of it, the realities of it, so we can learn how to deal with the worst case possible scenario. Because my commitment to you is to spend these years with you. And as you're launched into what God has you to do, I want to make you where you are, is it fail safe? I want to make it where you cannot be penetrated by evil. That you have spiritually what it takes to make it through, not as a survivor, but as an overcomer. I would rather you face it in here with me and tell yourself, this is a lesson I'm not going to listen to twice. <laughs> I'm going to only listen to once, but I'm going to take very good notes to make sure I'm prepared for what she's explaining to me. Because it's easier to talk about it when you're not in the emotions of it than when you're in the throes of shock.
So I will tell Esther a way that you won't hear me tell it again, but she was so beautiful that when people saw her, they assumed that she came from the same group of people as theirs. They didn't question her race. <laughs> They're like, if she's that gorgeous, I know she's the same as me. <laughs> it's a good Jewish thought. If someone is beautiful, you assume they must be kin to you. You assume it's the same DNA. No one questioned that Esther was not Persian. Everyone assumed they knew hers. It was the same as theirs, but none knew her identity. Her beauty, though, got her spotted. People that are powerfully beautiful, they have their own set of problems. People look at them and think, wow, wouldn't it be nice to have everybody's head turn? But evil people's heads turn as well. And the scriptures don't hide what was really taking place. In Esther 2, 12 through 14, I want us to take a moment of it. It says, now when the turn came for each woman to go to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. That means they might have been taking their teddy bears. Take what you want because you're not coming back. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Sheshgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. You understanding? These virgins, who were all quite young, were escorted to the king, who is old enough to be working on his second wife issues. They were taken one by one for him to sleep with, forced into his bed, then into his harem when they didn't make the cut. The king didn't return these virgins who failed his test, but instead they were added to the number of the king's other concubines. It's a modern term for sex trafficking. No other man could ever be their husband, and they never saw the king again unless he was pleased with them. So everyone but Esther and a few sidekicks were put away. It was a one-time shot at life. In short, the king test drove all the models before making his purchase, and he selected the one he wanted. Esther was the one to replace his former queen. And this is what Mordecai, he, I guess he didn't have a choice, let her go into. And I mean, that's the scripture showing you what was happening. It's the unromantic side. But you're going to have to understand this to understand the next part. Because when we tell it fairy tale, we tell it without understanding what was really upon her shoulders. Mordecai shows up at the gates, clothed in sackcloth, the sign of death and doom and destruction and mourning. And her first instinctual reaction to Mordecai is to try to get him dressed up in respectable clothes, stop drawing attention to himself. So what we can say to her is she was now in the palace, successful, and it's not discernment on her. She looks at her uncle and she goes, Mordecai, what's happened to you? This is not your normal behavior. You're usually not one to get into drama. Why are you wearing such clothing? But rather she could have said, Mordecai, what are you doing? Stop embarrassing yourself. Why are you dressed like that? I mean, look at you, you're in sackcloth. 
you know, you're putting everybody in danger by doing this. You know, many of us have been discipled by the sons of Mordecai. You know, where you think kind of like mainly that you've been discipled by how Esther initially reacts to it. Once you've had pleasure and success and you have the clothes you want, you look and you think, I'm embarrassed about my family. I'm embarrassed of how they think. You know, how many of us are deeply embarrassed by the Bible? How many of you, when you're successful, you go, my mom's religious. My sister's religious. You know, my dad, he's hard to take anywhere because he'll say something religious. And you put a little distance, us and them. You guard yourself. How embarrassing, how risky. If you find yourself embarrassed, check yourself at this point. Because it's probably not discernment. And this is what Esther felt. She saw her uncle. And he embarrassed her. And she sent him better clothes. How risky for my career, my friendships, my reputation, for my family, for my country. Look in verse 5. Then Esther called for Hatha, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered Go to Mordecai and learn what this is and why it is. And Hathka went out to Mordecai to the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasure for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king, to beg his favor, plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathka went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathka. In these cultures, and it's much like the one that we're working with, they're not allowed to talk to the men. And so the women are kept with the women, the men with the men, unless they made the men turn into women. They Bruce Jenner them. They make them eunuchs. <laughs> and so this is what happened. And so they they keep them in the care. It's a business. And all the king's servants and all the king's men, I know, and the king's <laughs> provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Like, she goes, deal's off. I mean, there's not even a way. Like, I have to be called into him. And I don't know what kind of vacation he's taking from me, but for 30 days I haven't seen him. And the stakes have been defined, and Esther's decision looks like this. She's trapped between her options. Option one is continue to abdicate and hide and pretend not to be a Jew and do nothing to stop their murder at her husband's decree. And let a slaughter take place. Option two, go to the king, risk her life, plead for the people of God. It's very clear that now for Esther, this option is the one that has a trap on two sides. One, now you go tell this guy you're Jewish, and he doesn't know it about you. <laughs> He's just signed a law into effect which will kill you and everyone in your family. And so the smartest thing that your uncle thinks for you to do is identify yourself now as a Jew. You know, you understand what they were going through in World War II when they started taking that yellow star off of them. Like, this is not the smartest thing to do. I've seen the paperwork, and he's going to kill the Jews, and now I'm supposed to go tell him I'm one? 
she will be identifying herself as one of the people for whom the king has just decreed death when you'd rather claim you don't know anything about them. Who are these strangers? And two, the other option is a very confrontive option. <laughs> Isn't it how God does this? So one is you have the ability to identify. The other one is go to the king when no one is allowed to approach him. And if he gets annoyed, it carries the death penalty unless the king explicitly gives you the nod and tell him not only that you're Jewish, but he's not allowed to kill all the Jews that are there when this guy has signed a law that cannot be taken back. Much like the blessing, once they put it into law, it can't be revoked. So it just seems like a losing battle. Why do it when it can't be taken back? You know, and we have this picture of Esther when we talk about her and we do our Sunday school lessons that she's like a movie star, like she has a co-starring role with this king and, and she's like his sidekick and, you know, they're just buddies. But it's not like that for Esther. It's not how we see women where the men saw them as having any ability to speak into them. This is not that kind of a relationship. There is no partnership, sidekick, helpmate in this kind of a society. So take a close look at addressing the real and the horrible things that Esther is really enduring in this kingdom. And we're able to see more clearly her character and courage and God's redemptive love at work in spite of the traps and the manipulations of men, of humans. And so the point that I'm making is we will tell this story in the way that things feel when God has his hand on it. Because the way it turned out seems like a great Hallmark movie. <laughs> the fairy tale. It's the basis of so many romantic stories. Because God's hand was on it. But in reality, there was a pressure. And there was something that had never been broken into before that Esther had to pierce. And it was not her beauty and charm that pierced it. It was something different, and it's what I'm telling you today. She was willing to not be passive and to face evil. She was willing to put her face on and decide, it calls for courage from me for this moment. Esther wrote her role. She did something that had not been done before. Life can shift without a moment's notice. Esther was on top of the world you can tell she was trying to tell Mordecai, come up to the fashion code. Come up to this level. Come up. You know, I never realized how shabby we looked and how funny our customs were. But what she didn't realize is her world had shifted to. And he was prophetic in the warning. What is the temptation to let yourself stay in shock? Do you think that the king's palace will escape any more than any other Jews? There it is. When you're confronted with it, you immediately go into temptation. To comfortably sit back, protected by the palace, by your name, seemingly impenetrable wall of her riches, power, and position, and let the people of God die. Let the nation go down the tube, not care what your leadership is or what they do. The temptation is to side with one kingdom over the other, and that's exactly what we're in, that it is easy now for you to side with a kingdom other than God's. It does not even take discernment. 
in the times we're living in to know whose side is which. It is clearly evil is parading in the streets. It is marching. It's proud of its rebellion. It has no heart for God. We are up against a moment when it's easy to say, I belong to the world and I think like the world and I'm passive like the world. And I think that Christianity is just being nice, putting on a nice face. When the Bible clearly tells you that your position towards evil is not to play nice, but to resist. That it's a position where you take it and you must resist this evil. The temptation is to side with one kingdom or the other, and you're faced with that choice today. You're faced, are you going to go along with everyone else and how everyone else thinks? Are you going to do what it takes to man up and to face the evil? You must take this moment, and you have to look at it. You've got to take a look at the films where they have the ultrasound, where they put the tube up in the baby, and they begin to stab the baby, and they suck its parts out, and you see the baby push against it, and you see the contortion on the baby. You must face this. You cannot lie to God and tell him, I didn't know, because the blood is on your hands. This is where it shocks me. A few decades ago, I noticed you had to have discernment to tell who really was good and who really was evil because evil people did not openly say, I'm for that. But now they'll tell you, abort the baby to the eighth month, to the ninth month, to the day before birth, and then if it happens to somehow survive you trying to murder it, then when it's laying on the table, alive in its blood, then kill it on the spot. That is the law. It cries out in Ezekiel where the baby is comes out and it says, and you kill it in its blood. It has not changed. We are not a primitive society. We are not superstitious. But they are still in the market. If you want the website, I was watching a senator from Tennessee at the NRB tell me, here is the website. Order baby parts. You can order any piece of a baby you want. Order it. It is no longer hidden. It does not take discernment. You have to stand before God. And you cannot deny it or not face it. There are issues that are at stake that it says that it does not bother you until they do not care for you anymore. At the point you compromise, at the point you say it doesn't matter, evil enters into you. What bothers me is that not the world that knows not God, but when you have the living Holy Spirit in you, there is no way you can take this issue and ignore it and say it doesn't exist. With the Holy Spirit in you, you're numbing yourself or you're doing something if you cannot say, this cannot be stood for. This makes me upset. I can't live with this. It's where the devil got King David, where he could not live with himself. The devil is trying to make you mess up in your life so bad with sin that you cannot live with what you've done. That you break your own heart. That you break who you really are. The devil's trying to mess you up to that degree. And this is what we're seeing here. 
How did Mordecai fight the disbelief in Esther? She was like the world. She's like the generation today where they say, this cannot be happening. It can't be that bad. You're an alarmist. You're an extremist. You're a conspiratist. You're all these different things. Mordecai, you've always had these odd beliefs. What did Mordecai do to bring her to her faith? And this is the speech in that context to get you out of the shock. Are we supposed to believe that he'd believe that she'd believe what he believed? <laughs> Don't you like that sentence? Are we supposed to believe that he'd believe what she believed what he believed? Because that's what you're up against trying to get them to believe. That means, have you ever tried to persuade someone on the social media of the righteousness of a position to have a conscience? You're faced with what I just said so eloquently. So well, that literally that you're trying to get people to believe when they don't want to believe what you believe that they're supposed to believe. When you don't want to believe something, and this is where Esther was, she didn't want to believe it. He counters her temptation. He counters that seduction that's pulling her to be in the world with faith. I was with a girl, and you would laugh if I told you who she was. But... I was in my den with her, and I told her, why will you not sell out to God? What's causing you not to sell out? What is it? I've been with you for five years, and with everything in me, I'm asking you, why won't you sell out? And I was yelling at her. What I didn't realize was that my authority had kicked in, and when I said, why will you not sell out? She goes, love of the world. I looked at her because she was very high up in ministry. She goes, love of the world? And I thought, the demon just spoke. It was like being in a deliverance and said, spirit, name yourself. Love of the world? And that's what it is that you struggle with at this moment, is love of the world. And that's where John says, if you love the world, don't kid yourself. You can't love God if you love the world or the things in the world. It's like there's something in you fighting and it will never make peace till you settle this. So Mordecai establishes God's promises and God's provision. And it's the ammunition with which he made war against the thoughts in her head and the attacks of the enemy. And this is Mordecai, this is how he's saying it. There's a temptation to side with the empire for the sake of safety and comfort. But it's only an illusion. My dear, I have raised you. You're only seeing an illusion. That safety is an illusion. The position that puts you in the way of danger, the very illusion itself will put you in the very gunpoint of illusion. What you compromise to keep, you will lose. To stand with the Lord is actually the only position of safety there is. Remember the joke I made in Matthew 24 when all these horrible things are coming on the world? I said there's only one position that's safe. It says, and the gospel will be preached to the end. So I said the safest group of people on the earth are the preachers. They'll make it to the end. And he's telling her the only position that you have is that shelter of trust. The position that puts you in the way of safety at the expense of standing with God is actually a place of great, terrible peril. 
Well, what if you find yourself, Esther, fighting against God himself? Listen, we fight temptation with faith. With faith in God's promises, faith in what God tells us. We fight temptation and say, I know that what I see right now seems insurmountable. I know that right now it looks like I'm preserving my life, my reputation, whatever, at the cost of obedience to God. It looks completely reasonable. But if I stop and I think about the absurd, verbose, you're not going to believe the next word, promises of God, his reward, his love, his faithfulness, his provision, I'd be crazy to listen to this other voice of temptation. So Esther determines to risk her life for the sake of the people, to stare down the death for the sake of life. She's determined to trust the promises of God and to do what she knows to do. You, in this room, are made to do what you know to do. You know to. You're smart enough to do it. Our Esther moments are unlikely to hold the future of a couple million lives in the balance. But they could. Maybe your day-to-day -day battle with self-preservation isn't, I'll perish if I perish. But it's, if I'm uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. Or if I offend my neighbor, I offend him. Danger. The danger is when you quit telling yourself the truth. So, does shock have an answer? Is there something you can do? That is for another lesson. But I'm going to read you some strong words. And this fits the knot that we're in and where we must go. Esther has a case of stunned disbelief. Esther got over it and did something about it. She rose to the moment. She had risk and urgency. And like Rebecca, who we've studied, she made a quick plan. A very unusual plan a very bold plan. She may have asked herself the question the Lord told me to ask myself. What's the boldest move I could make at this moment? So as Mario Marilla wrote today, disbelief will tell you that these crimes and these bald-faced lies can't possibly be happening. But they are, and we have to come to terms with it. Why are we not mad enough why are we not outraged enough to do something about it? Why are we being told to get rid of our anger? It's so unchristian. It's embarrassing. Look at how you're acting. Can you not accept the results? Can you not accept what has happened? Why do we have to hear a different message? We have to declare war on it. We have to turn the chaos back on the ones that are sending it. We have not been willing to bear the reproach of declaring the crime that has been committed. We're not dealing with crimes to come. We're declaring the crimes that have already been committed. And it's embarrassing. It's a reproach. It's how I feel when I watch people march around in a pro-life rally carrying those signs or being in front of an abortion clinic or making that thing and knowing I'm one of them. It's the reproach of life to stand up. This is the matter of life and death. But the fire in the belly we need has not yet been ignited. Amen.